Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jim Midget. I'm one of the associate pastors here at the church. And as you may have guessed, I have passed high school. Yes, I have. I'm actually all the way through, believe it or not. Um, I'm hoping a lot of you have too. And for those of you who haven't yet finished high school, don't worry. The end is in sight for some of you. That was a joke. Okay. <laughs> now, back when I was in high school, I don't know if this happened to you here in Nova Scotia. I, I don't really know what happens here, but we had standardized government exams. Do you have those here? Is that a thing? Every three years in Alberta, uh, you have to fill out a provincial exam, and that exam counts as the final exam in that class. It starts in grade 6, goes all the way through to grade 12. I'm not really sure what they were trying to keep record of. I don't know if they were trying to prove that their kids were the smartest kids or, or whatever. I really don't get it, but this happened. Now, in grade 12, I had to take biology in order to graduate. Um, I'm not sure if you're a fan of biology or not. I am no fan. I'm not very good at biology. Um, I kind of understand the logical process of things. You know, there's, there's cycles, and each of those cycles have an effect on the rest of your body and all that stuff. There's cycles in the environment and all that, and it all connects somehow together. And that part I get, but if you were to ask me what the chemical processes are within your body as to why things happen, and, and when you have to start making calculations, and all, I get completely lost, and I have no clue what you're talking about. And this was my trouble in biology. I would do pretty well on the homework assignments because, you know, you could look things up, you could think about it, you, could, you weren't pressed for time and all that stuff. But then when it came to exams, I was terrible. I mean, I failed a couple of unit exams. There was one time where I was supposed to label everything properly, and I had it all right, but I accidentally wrote them all like one space down from where they were supposed to be. So I got zero, even though I had all the right answers. I have a lot of injustice in my past, i got to tell you about. Uh, unfortunately, in my biology class, my teacher didn't particularly like me, and I didn't particularly like him, so that didn't really help very much. And when I got to this final exam... I had this, the same problem that I had with all provincial tests. I didn't know what the government was looking for. You know, like, usually when you're writing a final exam, you just kind of have to figure out what your teacher wants to know, and you have to word it in a way that your teacher would understand. And usually, it's just regurgitating the same information that your teacher has literally spoken to you. That's no problem. But when it's the government, you're like, well, I don't really know what the government wants me to say. I don't really know what my teacher wants me to say, so there you go. <laughs> And you roll the dice and hope that it works out. In my case, I went into that exam not knowing what my final mark was going to be. I had no idea where I stood in that class. I could have been passing. I could have been failing. I might have needed to get 100% in that exam in order to even pass the class for all I knew. Or maybe I was doing well enough that I could kind of flub most of that exam and I'd be okay. I didn't know. And it was really, really unsettling. I felt so insecure going into that exam. Do you know that feeling that I'm talking about, that insecure feeling? There's a lot riding on the situation, and you just don't know how it's going to turn out. Another time in college, there was this girl that was just gorgeous, and we spent a lot of time together. And I flirted like crazy with this girl, and she flirted back, and it was wonderful. Occasionally, we even held hands, and one time I even had my arm around her while we were watching a movie. It was wonderful. The problem was, I wasn't the only guy that she would do this with. There were several. And I never knew where I stood with her. And it was very unsettling. 
It was, it was hard to try to figure out, just from the, the bizarre cues that she would give me, where I stood. And of course, the thought never occurred to me to just sit her down and say, okay, what's going on? You know, that just didn't happen. But you know that uncertainty? The uncertainty of knowing how you stand with another person? Like, where does this relationship rank us? Are we okay? Is that actually something that exists? And that, that unsettling feeling can really cripple us sometimes. You know, it's one thing for me to talk about a class. It's quite another to talk about a potential romantic relationship. But what about relationships within our own families? What about hard things like that? You ever been unsure of where you stood with someone you were very close to? What about relationships at work? What about when you don't know where you stand with your boss? What if you're in that place where you don't know if you're about to be fired or if you're, if you're okay? What about, what about your own life? Have you ever felt insecure within your own life? Like, I don't even know what to expect out of myself. I don't know what the next few years are going to bring. I don't know. Have you ever felt that? What about your relationship to God? You ever felt uncertainty there? Where you stand before God, are you able to look at Him and just praise His name, or are you afraid? Do you know where you stand with Him? You see, insecurity is trouble. It causes us to question a lot. And in those other examples, it's usually a self-defeating prophecy, or a self-fulfilling prophecy, excuse me. You go into it, and you, you actually wind up sabotaging yourself because you're so insecure, you just shake the the structure over and over and over again until it falls down. Insecurity is like a house built of marshmallows. There's something there, but it's not firm. It's not solid. It isn't constructed to withhold any kind of pressure. Is your faith like that? Is it a house of marshmallows? You see, my sin is very serious. Your sin is very serious. Sin keeps us from experiencing God. It can be crippling. It can be isolating. And in those dark moments of isolation, when you feel very far from God, you start to ask ask yourself all kinds of questions. Like, am I really forgiven? Am I really saved? Is my faith actually just a house of marshmallows? We've been talking about the New Testament, we've been reading through this book, The Story. And we're getting right down to the very end. And this chapter this week was all about Paul and Paul's final days, it's called. You see, Paul faced this question many times within his own ministry. He was forced to ask the question, where do I stand with God? How is my faith doing? And when he writes the letter to 2 Timothy, this is one of the last things he ever writes. The good years have gone. And he's in a bit of trouble. You see, once again, Paul finds himself in prison. This, this isn't unique to him. A lot of these, the, the, the old disciples and the apostles, they, they found them, their way into prison. A lot of them were killed for their faith. But he, Paul spent a lot of time going in and out of prisons. He, he was chained to jailers before. He, he went in and he preached boldly inside prisons. And he sang hymns and he did all kinds of wonderful things. But this time was a little bit different. You see, this time he was being held in a small prison that was just outside the Colosseum in Rome. This prison was called the Mamertine Prison. 
And the only way in or out of this prison was a manhole in the ground. This room underneath was constantly damp and wet. The only way in or out was through that manhole by a rope that was lowered down by the guard. Now the guard was kind of a god in that situation. The guard determined who could go down there and who would come up. The guard determined what would go down and what would come up. The guard had control over everything within that prisoner's life down there. And that was designed on purpose. You see, if a prisoner escaped from that prison, the guard was executed. And so this did not encourage the guards to befriend the prisoners that were down there. This didn't encourage them to speak with the prisoners that were down there. In fact, they spent very little time communicating with those people because their life was on the line in regards to that prisoner. And the guard that was put into place there, this wasn't some honor that they got to have. This was right outside the Colosseum, where all the, in the Roman mind, where all the good stuff was happening. This is where the prisoners were kept in sort of like a holding tank until they were executed in the Colosseum. And so the, pris- the guard that was put right there, he was usually really, really poor. He was usually a very low social standing. He usually wasn't very well educated. And oftentimes these guards were particularly grumpy. And so your life was in the hands of a man who hated you, who resented you. Now down inside that cell, you had nothing. You had whatever was on you when you were sent in there, and you were often stripped and beaten before you were thrown into prison. So you had nothing. The Roman government, if you committed a crime in that day, during that rule, the Roman government considered any crime a crime against the state a crime against Rome herself. And so punishment was swift and often quite severe. And so this cell wasn't designed to hold people for a long period of time. It's not like the mental image we have of prison, where there's lockdowns and there's row upon row of cells and all that stuff. It was very, very different. It was very, very quick that you would find your execution if you were found guilty. It was very quick that you would be before a governor in trial. And the governor, by the way, if he decided that he just wanted to make you sweat in there, he could do it. There's no law governing the treatment of prisoners. He could do whatever he wanted to. And the the Roman government assumed no responsibility for the prisoners either. They didn't send them meals or water or anything like that. The only people that would care for you if you were sentenced and put in prison was friends and family. Now, you were dependent on friends and family for absolutely everything. You couldn't get your own food. You couldn't get uh, clothes or, or writing utensils or anything to pass the time while you were in there. You had to get them to come and visit you in prison. And the only way they could get into you was to pass that guard and be lowered down into that prison. And in that system of justice, the way it would work is if you were went and visited that person, you could be considered an accomplice to the crime that that person had committed. So you were literally taking your life into your own hands when you went. You had to bribe the guard to get down there. You had to bribe the guard to get back out. It was an unjust system. And once you were down there and you were trying to take care of your friend, it wasn't like you went and you had a nice box that was wrapped up and you gave them the present and you sat and had a nice chat and then you left. When you went in, they were dependent on you for care. So if you had any wounds, if you had any anything on your body that needed to be fixed, that was kind of their responsibility to help you out with that. If you were dirty, they needed to clean you. Now think about this. There was no sewage system. There was nowhere, there was no pots, there was nothing provided 
for them to, to use in that situation. So literally, it was a filthy place. Those that were coming in to visit would often come and clean the cell and clean the person that was in prison. This is a humbling thing. Now in Bible times, in, or in the Bible, when, when they say we should go and visit the prisoners, they're not, they're not talking about like a nice just sit and chat. They're talking about a very humbling experience. They're talking about a very, very specific expression of Christian love. And here's Paul in this prison, under this system, fully dependent on other people. And he's writing a letter to Timothy. And he's got all kinds of darkness around him, literal darkness surrounding him. He has suffered at the hands of the Romans, at the hands of the guard. They didn't make it easy for people to find Paul either. He says in his letter to 2 Timothy that some of his friends had trouble finding him. They didn't tell people where he was. Many people had abandoned him. And so he didn't know what to do. And yet he writes a letter. Facing tremendous uncertainty, he writes a letter. And I want to show you what he says. Take a look here. 2 Timothy chapter 1. He writes to this guy, Timothy. He says, Timothy, you are constantly in my prayers. Day and night I remember you before God, and I give thanks to him whom I serve with a clean conscience, as did my ancestors. I really, really want to see you, especially when I remember how you cried the last time we were together. Yes, I know it would make me joyful to see you again. And what strikes me most is how natural and sincere your faith is. I am convinced that the same faith that dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice abides in you as well. This is why I write to remind you to stir up the gift of God that was conveyed to you when I laid my hands upon you. You see, God did not give us a cowardly spirit, but a powerful, loving, and disciplined spirit. Aren't these incredible words? Here he is, alone in this cell. Very few people coming to visit him and to take care of him. Here he is, faced with possible execution. Here he is, knowing that this isn't a good situation. And he writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, you're the man. I love your faith. Your faith is great. Strengthen that faith. He writes, God did not give us a cowardly spirit, but a powerful, loving, and disciplined spirit. He's saying, we have victory. Now put yourself in his place. Think about that cell and how you would feel being there right now, right as you are. What would your letter sound like? Would you start it off by saying, boy, I'd like to tell you about your own faith. It is an encouragement to me. Or would it start somehow else? It would be awfully tempting to write about the, the suffering that you're experiencing, wouldn't it? Just to get it off your chest, just to feel better about it. And yet he doesn't write about that. He doesn't write about the problems facing him. And the question is, why? A little later on, he hints at it. Chapter 2. Remember, Jesus the Anointed, raised from the dead, descended from David's royal line. This is the crux of my good news. This is why I suffer and why I am bound and chained like a lawbreaker. But God's words are not in chains. 
That's why I endure everything for the sake of God's chosen, so that they might experience salvation with lasting, eternal glory through Jesus the Anointed, our liberating King. You see, Paul, in that situation, right there at the end of his life, he is laser-focused on his mission. He knows why he's on this world. He knows what it is he's supposed to be talking about. And he shares that. He says, we're talking about Jesus. I may be in chains, but the message is not. The message is going to carry on. In fact, it's because of the message that I'm here. So it's a good thing that I'm here because I've done what I'm supposed to do. I've been sharing this message. Everything he did, he did for the sake of the gospel, he says. Teaching other people about Christ. Teaching other people about forgiveness. And he knew that this may be his last opportunity to say anything meaningful to anyone. And so I want you to look at what he gives Timothy in in this next passage. He says, go out and preach the word. Go, whether it's an opportune time or not. Reprove warn and encourage, but do so with the patience and instruction needed to fulfill your calling, because a time will come when some will no longer tolerate sound teaching. Instead, they will live by their own desires. They'll scratch their itching ears by surrounding themselves with teachers who approve of their lifestyles and tell them what they want to hear. That's today, isn't it? They will turn away from the real truth that you have to offer because they prefer the sound of fables and myths. But you, you must stay focused and be alert at all times. Tolerate suffering, accomplish the good work of an evangelist, and complete the ministry to which you have been called. His last mission that he gives to Timothy, he says, you do it, you go. Help others understand what it is that you know. If you do this, they will be on sure footing with God. If you go out and do what you're supposed to do, other people will understand their position before the Lord. That's what I need you to go do. That's what is important here. Now go and do it. Don't be like those other people who, who just make stuff up and then gather together a bunch of people that agree with them so that they feel better about themselves. Those people are not on sure footing with God. They don't know where they are. It's a position of insecurity. Instead, be secure. And look at how Paul describes the end of his life. Chapter 4. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Remember the last time you spilled your cup and everything poured out, but maybe a few drops in the bottom? This is what he's talking about. I am being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is amazing to me. There he is, sitting in this dark cell. There he is, having no one to talk to but his own thoughts. He is confronted by his isolation. And down deep in that, in that part of us, where we hold all of our truth, all of the real things that we don't tend to share with everybody, down there, he says, there is nothing left in me except the reward that God has for me in heaven. He says, all that is in store for me now is to go for Jesus and to see him, and he is going to give me a crown. He is going to look at me and say, well done, 
my good and faithful servant. Paul was certain of what was about to happen to him. He was certain of where he stood with God. He was certain that he was right square in the middle of where God wanted him to be. Could you do that? You're in the cell. You're isolated. You're alone. You're asking those tough questions about God. Do you know where you stand with him right this second? Could you be like Paul and just shout out from the rooftops, that's it, I'm done. And the next thing for me is a crown of righteousness that God is going to reward me with. Do you know that for sure? You see, Paul may have been in a physical prison, and we are not. So sometimes that puts some distance between us and him. But I want you to consider this for a second. We build prisons for ourselves all the time. We isolate ourselves from other people all the time. We isolate ourselves from God all the time because our sin constructs a prison for us. We allow people to speak to us and we allow them to have power over us and we allow their truth to become our truth and we don't even bother to investigate what the Bible has to say about it and that constructs a prison. Sometimes our health constructs a prison for us. Sometimes our relationship to our family constructs prisons for us. And there in that isolation... By yourself, do you know where you stand with God? I hope, I really do hope, and I pray that you are able to say what Paul said. But just in case down there deep there is some insecurity, just in case you don't feel like you can say that with certainty, I want to show you right now where you stand with God. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, His masterpiece. I don't know about you. But when I get up in the morning and look in the mirror, I don't really see a, a masterpiece, you know. I mean, maybe a Picasso or something. <laughs> but I want to be his masterpiece. I want to be everything he created me to be. And so I go to him in prayer and I say, dear Heavenly Father, do whatever it takes to mold me into the image of your son. Make me your masterpiece. Whoa, who are you? I'm God. You said the prayer, so here I am. You're not God. No, I am. You said the prayer. That's how it works. Okay, okay. If you're God, then uh, make it snow in here. You know what? I really don't want to make it snow in here because it'd get kind of yucky. Yeah, you're not God. Why do you say that? God wouldn't say yucky. I do. It's a Greek word. Oh. Okay, okay. Um, if you're God, what does Lamentations 15.9 say? Lamentations is only five chapters. It's a very short book. Oh. Why was it so short? I was tired of lamenting. Oh. Okay, okay. If you're God, who's going to win the World Series this year? I'm really not into playing games. Why are you so much into playing games? You are, though. What gave it away? You answered my question with a question. I did? <sighs> yeah, I do that. Don't I? I did it again. <laughs> Step right up. Here we go. Okay. All right. Hey, what are we doing? I'm going to make you my original masterpiece. This is the process. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Wait, wait. What are these about? These are the tools I'm going to use to make you into my original masterpiece. Okay. Hang on. Yeah. I thought you were a carpenter. That's my son. Step right up. Here we go. Okay. Oh, hey, God. Mm -hmm. How do you know what to chisel away and what to leave? I take out everything in your life that doesn't belong there, kind of like dead weight. Ooh, speaking of dead weight, could you chisel right here? 
showed up when I was in my 20s and grew around and became backfat. I don't even know why you created that, but I can't get rid of it. I mean, I've tried everything. Like, I tried running. I tried lifting weights. My wife actually talked me into trying Pilates. That was awkward. But I can't get rid of it. So if you would just chisel around here, and then, you know what, if you chisel a line right here and maybe four to five, maybe eight lines right here, that would be awesome. <laughs> You're funny. You made me that way. I also made the platypus. The platypus. All I'm saying is most of my children, when it comes to this process, they just want to talk, but they don't want to do the work. So do you want to talk or can I chisel? Talk, chisel. No, talk, no, chisel. no, 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 no. I choose to chisel. All right. Through my Holy Spirit, I'm going to bring up things in your life that I want you to work on. Like your anger. Mm. I created the emotion, but you use it in the wrong way. Um, compare yourself to others instead of me. Tell little white lies because you want to people please. You're lazy. But you try to fool everybody by looking really, really busy. You have a problem with lust? Well, time out. <laughs> I don't really have a problem with lust. You don't have a problem with lust. No, I can do it anytime I want to. <sighs> Hang on a second. I mean, I, I got to admit, I, mean, I feel like you've been doing some great work, and I'm looking pretty good right now. All right, when you look in the mirror, who do you see? I see me. Okay, then I need to keep chiseling away, because ultimately, you and other people need to see my son. Okay, don't misunderstand me. It's just, um, when I look more like Jesus, people get uncomfortable around me. I mean, even my church friends, and they're like, oh, you're holier than thou, you know? And, and I, don't, I don't think I'm supposed to make people uncomfortable. So what you're saying is you'd rather play God in certain areas of your life than for me to be God over your whole life. That is not what I said. It's what you meant. Yes, it is. Um, it's hard to talk to you. You know everything that I'm thinking. I'm just saying you've done some great work. Maybe we take a break, a sabbatical from each other, you know? I'll stay right here, and then, you That's know... That's just it. You never just stay right there. You're either moving toward me or away from me, but never you just stay. What you're doing is called control. Do you want to control things in your life, or can I chisel? Control, chisel, control, no, chisel. No, chisel, chisel. All right. But can we chisel where I work? That's called control. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Now this right here, this secret sin that you keep running to whenever you're hurting, angry, lonely, tired, that you think you're fooling everybody, but it's making you a whitewashed tomb. Are you ready for me to chisel this out of your life? Yeah. See, it's a process. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's your whole life. And you care so deeply about what other people think of you. It's rubbish. It's garbage. The greatest thing you're ever going to hear is at the end of your life, when you hear me say, well done, good and faithful servant, that's what you keep your eye on. That's the prize. Heavenward. Oh, that hurts. Oh, Trust me, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. I just, I don't think you understand this pain. Pardon me? You're asking me to sacrifice a lot, God. Don't talk to me about sacrifice. I know all about sacrifice. I sent my son to die on the cross for pain, for sin, but I also did it for another reason, to give you freedom. Do you know what insanity is? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. And there are things that you've been doing for years, these empty wells that don't have anything to offer. You've been going to them, and it's insane. Allow me to chisel them out of your life. Um, allow me to produce character where you keep focusing so much on your image. 
Okay, but I was thinking. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Okay, but if we went another way. Your ways are not oh, my ways. Oh, I can't. You can't what? I, 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 I can't be good. That's your excuse. That's your excuse is that you can't be good. It's not an excuse. I can't. Oh, my child. In the beginning, I said it was good. I made you good. Be good. Karen, if you and I both... What? No, what is it? Nothing, okay? You wouldn't understand. I, God of all the universe, wouldn't understand something one of my children has to say. Try me. Just tell me. I let you down so many times, Kevin. No, my child. You were never holding me up. I hold you up with my victorious, righteous right hand. Never the other way around. In this relationship, I hold you up. Okay. I'll chisel away. Just, just be prepared for what you're going to find in me. Because I know who's inside. Because I get up every morning and I look at him in the mirror. And I hate who I am. Because deep inside there is just this, this little kid gets up every morning and dresses like an adult. And I go out and I, and I, I try to do what I'm supposed to do, but I can't, okay? I can't be who everybody else expects me to be. God, I can't even be who I want to be, much less who you created me to be. And so inside is this scared, stupid little kid. But you'll chisel away. Just be prepared. You have listened to so many voices for far too long that were not from me. And you have totally bought into the lie, haven't you? You think you're junk, don't you? When you lay your head down at night after you've done the dance to get the hug, you think you're junk. Listen to me. I don't take time to make junk. How can I show you that my love for you stretches as far as the east to the west? But how can I show you that my love for you has no end? I know. Reach in your back pocket. What? Reach in your back pocket. Why? Are you arguing with me? Reach your back pocket. Oh, God. Yes? I just went, God, I'll do that right now. You're just saying my name in vain. Come on. It's, it's a name. It's a saying. It's a name above all names. It's more than a saying. It's more than a name. I want to teach you something about my name. Reach your back pocket. Oh, my God. You know what that is? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a note. I, I wrote it when I was in college. How did you get this? Hello? Oh, yeah. Go ahead and read it. I love Angie. Other side. Sorry. Dear God, did I hear you right today? Did I hear you say Even though you and I both know I've messed up so many times. Did I hear you say you only use me? And I feel so useless. If you'll take me and use me, then God, I give you all that I am. Take me. I love you, God. 
love you too. And I love you too much just to leave you where you're at. This salvation that you hold, I don't want it to be some sentimental gush or some head knowledge. I want you to work it out in every detail of your life. And when problems come and chaos happens, don't look at it as a, as a prison, but look at it as a father disciplines his child. A father disciplines the ones he loves. I know, but it's going to be tough. Yes, but you bought into the lie thinking everything was going to be easy when you gave everything over to me. There will be trouble in this world. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I want you to do something. I want you to look out there and I want you to say, Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Tommy is God's... No, not the way you see yourself or you try so desperately for others to see you. But maybe for the first time in your life, the way I see you, the way I created you. Tommy... God's original masterpiece. Yes, you are. And so is God. God doesn't forget. You are.